Hello everyone, and I'm your host Luke. Uh, today we're going to be going over the sinking of the RMS Lusitania, which was named after the Roman province in Western Europe. It was a British ocean liner that was launched by the Cunard Line in 1906 and held the blue ribboned appellation for the fastest at Atlantic crossing in 1908. It was briefly the world's largest passenger ship until the completion of the Mauritania three months later. She was sunk on her 202nd transatlantic crossing on May 7th, 1915 by a German U-boat 11 miles off the western coast of Ireland, killing 1,200 passengers and crew. So, growing up, I always thought that this was the main reason why we suddenly joined World War One, but this goes on to say the sinking occurred about two years before the United States declaration of war on Germany. Although it was a major factor in building American support for the war because there were American passengers on the ship, war was eventually declared only after the Imperial German government resumed the use of unrestricted submarine warfare against American shipping in an attempt to break the transatlantic supply chain from the U.S. to Britain, as well as the Zimmermann telegram, which was a uh, telegram sent from Germany to the government of Mexico, uh, telling them that like if they attacked America, Germany would help them re take, uh, like, uh, the land, or the, yeah, the land or territory they lost in the Mexican-American War. Uh, German shipping lines was, uh, the main competitors for the custom of transatlantic passengers in the early 20th century, and, uh, the Cunard responded by building two new quote, Ocean Greyhounds, the Lusitania and the Mauritania. Uh, it used assistance from the British Admiralty to build both new ships on the understanding that the ship would be available for military duty in times of war. During construction, gun mounts for deck cannons were installed, but no cannons were ever fitted, and both were fitted with turbine engine, then engines that enabled them to maintain a service speed of 24 knots or 28 miles per hour. They were equipped with lifts, wireless telegraph, and electric lighting, and provided 50% more passenger space than any other ship, and they were also known for their sumptuous uh, furnishings. Um, so... Uh, when it left New York for Britain on May 1st, 1915, the German embassy in the U.S. placed 50 newspaper advertisements warning people of the dangers of sailing on board the Lusitania. Objections were made by the British that threatening to torpedo all ships indiscriminately were wrong, whether it was announced in advance or not. On the afternoon of May 7th, a German U-boat torpedoed the Lusitania 11 miles off the southern coast of Ireland 
inside the declared war zone. A second internal explosion caused her to sink in 18 minutes. Wow. Killing the 1,200 people. The German government justified treating the Lusitania as a naval vessel because she was carrying 173 tons of war munitions and ammunition, making her a, quote, legitimate military target. And they argued that British merchant ships had violated the cruiser rules um, from the very beginning of the war. These internally rec internationally recognized cruiser rules were obsolete by 1915 as it be had become more dangerous for submarines to surface and give warning with the introduction of Q ships in 1915 by the Royal Navy, which were con armed with concealed deck guns. The Germans argued that the Lusitania was regularly transporting, quote, war munitions, that she operated under the control of the Admiralty, and she could be converted into an armed auxiliary cruiser to join the war, um, with her identity being disguised, and that she flew no flags. Um... So, however, the ship was not armed for battle and was also carrying hundreds of civilian passengers. And the British government accused the Germans of breaching the cruiser rules. And the sinking caused a storm of protests in the U.S. because 128 American citizens were among the dead. The sinking shifted public opinion in the U.S. against Germany and was one of the factors in the declaration of war nearly two years later. Like, I guess I had thought or remembered or learned that, like, I thought that it was, like, like we declared war immediately afterwards, but not according to this, that it was two years after that we declared war, which... Um, Yeah. Um, so I kind of want to talk about um, the ship itself. Um, with seeing the pictures of the Lusitania, um, I, I mean, it looks like it had more, I guess you'd call them smokestacks or exhaust stacks or whatever uh, than the Titanic. But um, here it says that they were both British ocean liners, and um, the Lusitania was 787 feet, and the Titanic was 883 feet. So I, I kind of wanted to talk about the interior, too, because it's um, a very uh, decadent ship, obviously. So at the time of their introduction, uh, both the Lusitania and Mauritania possessed among the most luxurious, spacious, and comfortable interiors afloat. The Scottish architect James Miller was chosen to design the Lusitania's interiors, while Harold Pito was chosen to design the Mauritania's. Miller chose to use plasterwork to create interiors Whereas uh, the other uh, Harold made extensive use of wooden paneling, with the result that the overall impression given by the Lusitania 
was brighter than the Mauritania. The passengers' accommodations was spread across six decks, from the top top deck down to the waterline. They were boat deck, the A deck, the promenade, the shelter, the upper deck, the main deck, and the lower deck, going from A to F in that order, with each of the three passenger classes being allotted their own space on the ship. As seen aboard all passenger liners of the area, first, second, and third class um, passengers were strictly segregated from one another. According to her original configuration in 1907, she was designed to carry 2,200 passengers and 830 crew members. The Connor Line prided itself with a record for passenger satisfaction. The first class accommodation was the center in the center section of the ship on the five uppermost decks, mostly concentrated between the first and fourth funnels. When fully booked, the Lusitania could cater up to 552 first-class passengers in common with all major liners of the period. Its first-class interiors were decorated with a melange of historical styles. The first-class dining saloon was the grandest of the ship's public rooms, arranged over two decks with an open circular uh, well at its center and crowned by an elaborate dome uh, measuring 29 feet. Decorated with frescoes in the style of Francois Boucher, it was elegantly realized throughout uh, the neoclassical Louis XVI style. The lower floor measured 85 feet um, and could seat 323, with a further 147 on the 65-foot upper floor. The walls were finished with white and gilt carved mahogany panels with Corinthian decorated columns which were required to support the floor above. The one concession to seaborne life was that the furniture was bolted to the floor, (laughs) meaning passengers could not rearrange their seating for their personal convenience. Um, All other first-class public rooms were situated on the boat deck and comprised a reading and writing room, smoking room, and veranda cafe. Um, the last was an innovation on a Cunner liner, and in warm weather, one side of the cafe could be opened up to give the impression of sitting outdoors. This would have been a rarely used feature, given the often inclement weather uh, of the North Atlantic. The first-class lounge was decorated in Georgian Georgian style with inlaid mahogany panels surrounding a jade green carpet with a yellow floral pattern measuring an overall 68 feet. It had a barrel-vaulted skylight rising to 20 feet with stained glass windows, each representing one month of the year. Each end of the lounge had a 14-foot high green marble fireplace incorporating enameled panels uh, by Alexander Fisher. The design was linked overall with decorative plaster work and the library walls were decorated with carved pilasters and moldings marked with marked out panels of gray and cream silk brocade. The carpet was rose um, 
The chairs and writing desks were mahogany, and the windows featured etched glass. The smoking room was Queen Anne style, with Italian walnut paneling and Italian red furnishings. The grand stairway linked all six decks of the passenger accommodation, with wide hallways on each level and two lifts. First-class cabins ranged from one shared room through various ensuite arrangements and a choice of decorative styles, culminating in the two regal suites, which each had two bedrooms, a dining room, a parlor, and a bathroom. Wait. Sorry, I'm just curious. Um, did anyone survive... The Lusitania. So 761 people survived out of the 1266 passengers and 696 crew aboard. Um, so I'll get to that in a minute. Um, so the second class accommodations was confined to the stern behind the aft mast where quarters for 460 second-class passengers were located. The second-class public rooms were situated on partitioned sections of boat and promenade decks housed in a separate section of the superstructure aft of the first-class passenger quarters. Design work was deputized to Robert White, who was the architect employed by John Brown. Although smaller and plainer, the design of the dining room reflected that of first class, with just one floor of diners under a ceiling with a smaller dome and balcony. Walls were paneled and carved with decorated pillars all in white. As seen in first class, the dining room was situated lower down in the ship on the saloon deck, with the smoking and ladies' room occupying the accommodation space of the second class promenade deck with the lounge on the boat deck. Uh, Conard had not previously um, provided a separate lounge for second class. Uh, da, 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 da. The separate lounge um, was 42 was a 42 foot room that had mahogany tables chairs and settees set on a rose carpet. The smoking room was 52 feet with mahogany paneling. Um, the passengers were a lot of shared yet comfortable two and four berth cabins arranged on the shelter, upper and main decks. Um, third class board Lusitania was praised for the improvement in travel conditions it provided to uh, immigrant passengers. It proved to be quite a popular ship for immigrants. In the days before Lusitania, and even still during the years in which it was in service, third-class accommodation consisted of um, large open spaces where hundreds of people would share open berths and hastily constructed public spaces, often consisting of no more than a small portion of open deck space and a few tables constructed within their sleeping quarters. In an attempt to break that mold, the Cunard line 
began designing ships such as the Lusitania um, with more comfortable third-class accommodation. As on all Cunard passenger liners, third-class accommodation aboard the Lusitania was located at the forward end of the ship on the shelter, upper, main, and lower decks, and in comparison to other ships of the period, it was comfortable and spacious. The 79-foot dining room was at the bow of the ship on the saloon deck that was finished in polished pine, as were the two-third class public rooms being the smoke room and ladies' room on the shelter deck. So what I find interesting is, okay, so like the second class was mahogany, the third class was pine, and then the uh, first class was... Also mahogany. Um, I honestly don't really like mahogany, but I don't know. Pine is terrible outside. Um, yeah. Uh, da, 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 da. As on all Cunard passenger liners, third class accommodation aboard the Lusitania was located at the forward end of the ship on the shelter, upper, main, and lower decks, and in comparison to other ships of the period, it was comfortable and spacious. Which I find really ironic because if you look at a sinking of the Lusitania, um, wait. I can't tell if what part of the ship sank first. I mean, it looks like it was the back of the ship and then the front of the ship sank last. I can't really tell, but whatever. Um, when it was fully booked in third class, the smoking and ladies' room could easily be converted into overflow dining rooms for added convenience. Meals were eaten at long tables with swivel chairs, and there were two sittings for meals. A piano was provided for passenger use, and what greatly appealed to immigrants and lower-class travelers was that instead of being confined to open-berth dormitories aboard the Lusitania was a honeycomb of two, four, six, and eight-berth cabins allotted to third-class passengers on the main and lower decks. Uh, so one small thing of note is on January 10th, 1910, the Lusitania was on a voyage from Liverpool to New York when two days into the trip, she encountered a rogue wave that was 73 or 75 feet high. The design of the ship's bow allowed for her to break through waves instead of riding on top of them. This, however, came with a cost. As the wave rolled over Lusitania's bow and slammed into the bridge, as a result, the forecastle deck was damaged. The bridge windows were smashed. The bridge was shifted a couple of inches aft, and both the deck and the bridge were given a permanent depression of a few inches. No one was injured, and the Lusitania continued on as normal, albeit uh, 
arriving a few hours late in New York with some shaken up passengers. So now we get to the sinking of the Lusitania. On May 7th, 1915, it was during the end of her 202nd crossing bound for Liverpool from New York and was scheduled to dock at the Prince's Landing stage later that afternoon. Aboard uh, were her 1266 passengers and a crew of 696. She was running parallel to the south coast of Ireland and is roughly 11 miles off the old head of Kinsale when the liner crossed in front of U-20 at 2.10 p.m. Due to the liner's great speed, some believe the intersection of the German U-boat and the liner to be coincidence, as U-20 could hardly have caught the fast vessel otherwise. There are discrepancies concerning the speed of the Lusitania, as it had been reported traveling not near its full speed. Uh, Walther Schweiger, the commanding officer of the U-boat, gave the order to fire one torpedo which struck it on the starboard bow just beneath the wheelhouse. Moments later, a second explosion erupted from within the Lusitania's hull where the torpedo had struck and the ship began to founder much more rapidly with a prominent list to starboard. Almost immediately, the, screw, <laughs> the crew scrambled to launch the lifeboats, but the conditions of the sinking made their usage extremely difficult and in some cases, impossible due to the ship's severe uh, tilt. In all, only six out of 48 lifeboats were launched successfully. Holy, wow. 18 minutes after the torpedo struck, the ship's trim leveled out and she went under, with the funnels and masts the last to disappear. Of the 1,962 passengers and crew, at the time of sinking, 1,200 lost their lives. In the hours after the sinking, acts of heroism amongst both the survivors of the sinking and the Irish rescuers who had heard word of the distress signals brought the survivor count to 764, three of whom later died from injuries sustained during the sinking. A British cruiser, the HMS Juno, which had heard of the sinking only a short ta time after it was struck, left her anchorage in Cork Harbor to render assistance. Just south of Roche's Point at the mouth of the harbor, only an hour from the site of the sinking, she turned and returned to her mooring as a result, it is believed. By the following morning, news of the disaster had spread around the world, while most of those lost in the sinking were British or Canadians. Those poor, poor Canadians. The loss of 128 Americans in the disaster, including writer and publisher Albert Hubbard, theatrical producer Charles Froman, multi-million businessman Alfred Gwynne Vanderbilt. Holy shit. A Vanderbilt died in this, and the president of... Newport News Shipbuilding, Albert L. Hopkins, outraged many of in the U.S.
God. Um, so, apparently, the wreck of the Lusitania was depth-charged or attacked with hedgehog mortars by the Royal Navy during World War II. A Dublin-based technical diver, Des Quigley, who dived on the wreck in the 1990s, reported that the wreck is, quote, like Swiss cheese, and the seabed around her is, quote, littered with unexploded hedgehog mines. These attacks may have been accidental, as the wreck would have registered on World War II active sonar as a possible U-boat. World War II systems were not as discriminating as modern sonar, and the wreck would have presented a good return signal, and thus a tempting target. U-boats were so active in the Southern Irish Sea in World War II that Britain eventually placed several deep minefields in the area at depths where only submarines would have been liable to detonate them. Uh... In in 2009, there was a Discovery Channel television series called Treasure Quest in which Greg Bemis, a retired venture capitalist who owns the rights to the wreck, and a team of shipwreck experts... How can you buy the rights to a, a shipwreck? God, I love capitalism. And a team of shipwreck experts explored the wreck via a... Remote control unmanned submersible. At one point in the documentary, an unexploded depth charge was found in the wreckage. A professor, William Kingston of Trinity College, claimed, quote, There's no doubt at all about it that the Royal Navy and the British government have taken very considerable steps over the years to try to prevent whatever can be found out about the Lusitania. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, So the wreck of the Lusitania was located on October 6th, 1935. It lies on a starboard side at an approximately 30 degree angle in roughly 300 feet of water. I mean, I don't think that that's that deep, but, you know, I'm not a diver. I mean, I've been on a cruise ship, but that's about it. Thank you, Carnival Cruise Lines. The wreck is badly collapsed on its starboard side due to the fourth force with which it struck the bottom, coupled with the forces of winter tides and corrosion in the decades since the sinking. The keel has an unusual curvature, which may be related to a lack of strength from the loss of its superstructure. The beam is reduced with the funnels, presumably due to deterioration. The bow is the most prominent portion of the wreck, with the stern damaged by depth charges. Three of the four propellers were removed by Oceaneering International in 1982 for display, though one was melted down. Expeditions to the Lusitania have shown that the ship has deteriorated much faster than the Titanic has, being in a depth of 305 feet of water. When contrasted with her temporary, Titanic uh, resting at a depth of 12,500 feet. 
It appears in a much more deteriorated state due to the presence of fishing nets lying on the wreckage, the blasting of the wreck with depth charges, and multiple salvage operations. As a result, the wreck is unstable and may at some point completely collapse. There's been recent academic commentary exploring the possibility of listing the wreck site as a World Heritage Site under the World Heritage Convention, although challenges remain in terms of ownership and preventing further deterioration of the wreck. Jesus Christ. <laughs> what the hell? So, um, so I found an article that says the eerie links between the Lusitania and the uh, Titanic. So when the Lusitania went down three years after the sinking of the Titanic, the similarities were both hard to overlook. Both British ocean liners had been the largest ships in the world when they first launched. Uh, the Lusitania at 787 feet in 1906 and the Titanic at 883 feet in 1911. And both were ostentatiously luxurious, designed to ferry the world's wealthiest passengers between Europe and the U.S. in comfort and elegance. Um, just before it left New York bound for Liverpool, German officials posted notices in American newspapers warning that any ship under British flag, including merchant vessels and passenger liners, could be targeted as the war between the nations intensified. But not everyone believed the German Navy would follow through on the threat, with notable doubters including Winston Churchill and the Lusitania's captain, W.T. Turner, who told a reporter, quote, it's the best joke I've heard in many days, this talk of torpedoing. Um, did W.T. Turner die in... A Lusitania sinking. Wait. So did did he go? Oh, he didn't go down with the ship. Um, uh, in 1915, the Lusitania was torpedoed and sunk by a German U-boat, and an admiralty inquiry brought serious charges against Turner. Winston Churchill was directly involved with the case, and although Turner was exonerated, the charges haunted him for the rest of his days, and he lived in seclusion. God. Holy shit. Um, <laughs> so, in the autumn of 1916, nearly a year after the sinking of Lusitania, 
Captain Turner was appointed relieving master of the Cutterline vessel SS Ivernia, which had been chartered for use as a troop carrier by the British government. On New Year's Day, 1917, the vessel was torpedoed in the Mediterranean Sea off the Greek coast by a German U-boat with 2,400 troops aboard. The ship went down fairly quickly with a loss of 36 crew members and 84 troops. Once again, he survived the loss of his ship to torpedoes. This time, the New York Times reported he remained in the bridge until all aboard had departed in lifeboats and rafts, quote, before striking out to swim as the vessel went down under his feet. Turner received the name nickname Bowler Bill for his custom of buying a brand new bowler hat upon taking command of a ship and wearing this hat on ship's business. Gross. Turner married his cousin, Alice Elizabeth Hitching, on August... God, what the hell? August 31st, 1883... They lived together in Manchester and had two sons. Alice moved out in 1903 with his sons when the couple separated. They remained separated for the rest of their lives, and Turner lived with his housekeeper and companion, Miss Mabel Every. Alice emigrated with Turner's sons to Australia in 1915 following the Admiralty's inquiry and subsequently relocated to Canada at an unknown date. <laughs> Without knowing his sons had relocated to Canada, Turner went in search of them upon being diagnosed with intestinal cancer. In November 1919, he retired, telling Mabel, All I want now is a quiet life, damn it. It was at this time he was awarded the OBE, God, at the behest of the chairman of the Cunard Steamship Company, even though he sank at least two ships. He died of intestinal cancer on June 23rd, 1933. God. And then his son, age 55, was lost on September 16th, 1941, on the MV Jedmore when it was sunk by a German U-boat. Jesus Christ. Why did he marry his cousin? Gross. Uh, um, the list of the dead from both vessels uh, of the Lusitania and the Titanic uh, might have been ripped from the society pages. Among those who died on the Titanic were Benjamin Guggenheim, heir to his family's vast mining fortune, Isidore Strauss, co-owner of Macy's, and John Jacob Astor IV, widely reported to be the richest man in the world. Lost on the Lusitania were famed Broadway producer Charles Froman, fashion designer Kerry Kennedy, and millionaire sportsman Alfred Gwynne Vanderbilt, who was on his way to England to lead the annual meeting of the International Horse Breeders Association. At least he didn't marry his cousin. Wow. Um, 
The small world of the immensely wealthy created a number of eerie connections between the two doomed ships. Vanderbilt, for example, had been booked on the Titanic three years earlier, but didn't sell. Lady Duff Gordon, one of the most famous Titanic survivors, had a ticket for the Lusitania, but canceled at the last minute for health reasons. Despite their similarity, however, the two ships were on a sociological study of contrast in the human response to imminent disaster. On the Titanic, women and children were more likely to be saved during an ordered evacuation effort that followed the social rules of the day. On the Lusitania, uh, chaos reigned and the fittest survived, winning the race to lifeboats and flotation devices. Oh, my God. So aboard the Titanic, uh, it took two hours and 40 minutes for them to um, sink while the Lusitania went down in only 18 minutes. Uh, furthermore, everyone aboard the Lusitania was keenly aware of how things had turned out on the Titanic three years earlier. Um, they were therefore, quote, disabused of the idea that there was any such thing a ship that was too grand to sink, their own included. So I found, I was able to find um, one passenger's uh, story of survival uh, aboard the Lusitania, and this comes to us from the BBC. Um, she was presumed dead and was left among the pile of other dead bodies. Fortunately, her brother John noticed her eyelid flutter, and eventually they were able to resuscitate her. As how Colleen Waters had described the miraculous survival of her grandmother, Nettie Moore, when the Lusitania was sunk a hundred years ago. She lived through the tragedy, but she suffered huge personal loss, finding it difficult to talk about the events of that day for the rest of her life. Uh, that, uh, the sinking of the Lusitania, one of the largest, fastest, and most luxurious passenger liners of the day, caused widespread shock and outrage. The anti-German sentiment it provoked was used as a recruitment tool in the um, in the British war effort. Um, just to be totally transparent, like I'm a fourth-generation American, um, I am half German. Um, my great-grandpa came over in like 1920-ish. But, um, yeah, I'm firmly American, so, yeah, whatever. Just thought I should point that out. Um, uh, but for Colleen Waters and the par parishioners at Holy Trinity Church, uh, the Lusitania is a very personal tragedy. Quote, my grandmother Nettie Moore grew up in Bali, Lesson County Down, and her childhood sweetheart was Walter Mitchell, who was the son of the rector at the local Holy Trinity Church in Drumbo. In 1912, uh, Walter was asked to take up a position in a mill in Newark, so Walter and Nettie got married and em emigrated. The couple had a son, also named Walter, uh, 
but a combination of Walter Sr.'s mother dying suddenly and his company needing him home led the family to book their tickets uh, for the Lusitania, along with her brother, uh, John. Um, on May 7th, 1915, uh, it had begun as a beautiful day with the sea very calm. Quote, my grandmother always emphasized how happy they were on the boat. They had just finished lunch when Walter and Nettie went down to the cabin to see who the baby who was being looked after while John joined his friends playing card. Um, the torpedo struck as they were getting into the cabin. They somehow managed to get into a lifeboat, but the lifeboat sank slowly in the water because there were no bungs in it. Walter was holding his son, but the baby died quite soon of exposure. They were trying to hold on to an upturned lifeboat. Walter eventually said, I can't hold on any longer and slipped away. God. Their bodies were taken out of the water. Uh, her gran grandmother said she remembered being dragged by her feet and her head bouncing on the deck of the ship. She was taken for dead and she was left with the dead bodies on the quay side. Uh... Fortunately, John had been picked up by a tugboat and brought to Cobb County Cork, then called Queenston. Um, he saw the bodies being dragged from the water and found Nettie and Walter's bodies, initially assuming they were both dead. He thought he saw Nettie's eyelids flutter and they were able to resuscitate her. Um, so then... Uh, she goes on to say, quote, I've been told that Nettie was in a shoe shop in Cork and John was buying her shoes so they could come home. There she met some sailors who said they had found the body of a beautiful baby and she begged them to tell where there was the baby, what they did with it. And she was sure it was Walter, but despite the best efforts, they weren't able to locate the body. Um... This, the granddaughter and her family always believed that the baby's body had never been discovered, but she recently found out this wasn't the case. Um, it was actually buried in a mass grave in Cobb. Uh, there's a letter where Nettie is trying to get the council to get the body back, but they won't do it, and there's nothing that can be done. So the baby is buried in Cobb, and she didn't ever tell anyone that. Um, John and Nettie arrived home at midnight on the Sunday, having traveled all the way from Cobb with the coffin, where newspaper reporters were waiting. After the tragedy, she didn't sleep and was fearful she was going to lose her mind as she struggled to come to terms with her loss. Uh, Colleen said the doctor gave her grandmother simple advice. Quote, he told her, you just have to do something that's very hard work. She decided she would take up nursing. She went to the Rotunda hospital in Dublin and trained as a midwife. It seems to have worked and having lost her own infant son, her new mission in life came, became to deliver other babies safely into the world. Um, this wasn't the only historic event that she was caught up in. She was working in the center of Dublin in 1916, so she became embroiled in the Easter Rising. Some of the wounded were brought to the hospital. Allegedly, the British Army then came looking in for rebels. 
she said later it was nighttime when they came in and there was a lot of commotion. So she took the poker from the fireplace and went to see what the noise was. Um, so wielding the poker said, no, of course there aren't any rebels in my wards. Don't you dare to serve any of my ladies. Um, Um, uh, so in 1918, a New York court established that the Lusitania was carrying 4,200 cases of small arms and ammunition, but was neither armed nor carrying explosives, and experts agree that the sinking broke international law. Uh... Divers have surveyed the wreck with no explosives ever found. With the tragedy carrying huge significance, as Winston Churchill later described, um, quote, in spite of all its horror, we must regard the sinking of the Lusitania as an event most important and favorable to the Allies. Uh, the poor people who perished in the ocean attack struck a blow at German power, more deadly than could have been achieved by the sacrifice of a hundred thousand men. Um, it is believed that 82 Irish people died in the sinking of the Lusitania. Okay, so one quick aspect I wanted to talk about the Lusitania was uh, the conspiracy theories on it, but there's a lot about it that I didn't know that I covered before this. So did Winston Churchill engineer a conspiracy to sink the Lusitania and bring the United States into World War I? The speculation about the conspiracy theory comes from a letter Churchill wrote to Walter Runciman, the president of Britain's Board of Trade. In this letter, Churchill wrote the following, quote, It is most important to attract neutral shipping to our shores, in the hope especially or embroiling the U.S. with Germany. For our part, we want the traffic. The more, the better. And if some of it gets in trouble, better still. Of course, the obvious hole in this argument is that while the United States was neutral, the Lusitania was clearly a British ship, not, quote, neutral shipping. One can also question the lack of action on behalf of the Admiralty, in light of the Admiralty's previous records of looking after the Lusitania. It was a symbol of national prestige. Nationally, naturally, more privileges were granted to her than any other ship. When it was scheduled to arrive in Liverpool, uh, the Trade Division signaled the Lusitania at Cunard's request, relaying, quote, owners advise keep well out, time arrival to crossbar without waiting. The Admiral... Henry Oliver also sent two destroyers, the HMS Laverock and HMS Lewis, to receive and escort the Lusitania, and then sent Q-ship HMS Lions to patrol Liverpool Bay, even with the shortage of available destroyers at the time. Captain Dow, not wishing to disclose his location to listening Germans, steamed the Lusitania into Liverpool by herself. Compare this with her last crossing where the Admiralty took no precautions to protect Lusitania. No specific orders, no escorts, no Q-ships. Even when the destroyers Lucifer, Legion, Lynette, 
in Laverock. We're sitting idly at Milford Haven, Wales, and we're available for such a job. Even when the Admiralty knew full well of the danger the Lusitania was heading into, it did not relay the news of the sinkings of the Earl of Latham, Candidate, Centurion, and the attempt on the Cayo Romano to the Lusitania, despite the fact that these incidents were reported to the Admiralty and specifically requested to reach the Lusitania. 23 merchant vessels had been torpedoed in the general area where she was steaming through since the Lusitania had left New York, and absolutely no word of any of these attacks were relayed to it. Radio silence would not have been an excuse, as Admiral Oliver could have alerted Vice Admiral Koch at Queenston of the danger if he could not reach the Lusitania. Furthermore, radio exchanges between Lusitania and the Admiralty from May 5th to the 7th remain classified to this day. This has led to speculation that Captain Turner had requested to divert the Lusitania north around Ireland and through the North Channel and was uh, denied. The North Channel route was cleared of mines by April 15th, 1915, and the Admiralty could permit merchant ships to pass through if given the okay. Being denied this route, Captain Turner would have to take the Lusitania south where she was torpedoed. The fact that no correspondence between Churchill and First Sea Lord Jackie Fisher from the time of Lusitania's last crossing has survived has also fueled speculation that something was going on. The precautions taken to ensure her safety in March and the safety of other vessels since the Germans declared the waters around Britain a war zone, were conspicuously absent on her last crossing. The Admiralty had 10 days to aid the Lusitania and did not. From this one, uh, one would come to two conclusions. The Admiralty did plan to expose it to danger in the off chance that a su- German submarine would attack her, enraging the American public, or the Admiralty fouled up and their gross negligence resulted in a tremendous loss of life. However, if it did happen, it cannot be designed in great detail and must leave a great deal to chance. The British codebreakers of Room 40 did not always have the most updated locations of German submarines, and the U-boats of the First World War did not have reliable aims. The chances that any torpedo would hit the very spot that would have dealt her a fatal blow were impossibly remote. In fact, if Schweiger had not overestimated the Lusitania's speed by four knots, the torpedo would have struck elsewhere, and the ship probably would not have sunk. Um, Any possible conspiracy could only have been of one withholding info from the Lusitania, and leaving chance to put the ship in harm's way. A successful U-boat attack would require the submarine to be not within a few miles, but within a few hundred yards of the Lusitania, and on a bearing suitable for attack. Furthermore, for a ship as meticulously designed as the Lusitania, the plotters probably only imagined an injured but stable Lusitania limping into Queenston, hoping that the attempt alone would anger the U.S. into joining the Allies, a complete sinking with tremendous loss of life, however, would have been unthinkable and would have horrified the plotters, spurring them into a hasty cover-up. 
One must realize that in the lack of hard evidence, any suspicion of a government conspiracy is only circumstantial. Uh, a foul, uh, That in and of itself is not proof of any government plot. A foul-up, however, was also possible. At the time, the Admiralty had been preoccupied with Churchill's brainchild, the Dardanelles campaign. The Lusitania might have only been an afterthought to the men of the Admiralty. Uh, the situation was worsened by the fact that both Churchill and First Sea Lord Jackie Fisher kept information to themselves and were known to micromanage. Their refusal to delegate jobs led to Churchill's and Fisher's subordinates being ill-equipped to act on their own, leading to no one acting or even consider acting to protect Lusitania. Furthermore, it would have been unthinkable for a ship as fast as the Lusitania to be attacked, let alone sunk, so actions to protect her might not have been deemed necessary. So, um, there's not really a conspiracy, I guess. It's more of just bureaucratic nonsense, and they're, they were more focused on other... Uh, parts of the war. A foul-up could also explain the cover-up. If the truth of such a, of this had been made public, it would have been a tremendous national humiliation played out in front of the central powers and a blow to British morale. As it was, no one in the upper ranks of the Admiralty was held accountable for the bungling, and Churchill and First Sea Lord Jackie Fisher were eager, eager to push the blame onto Captain Turner, who once again had married his cousin. So yeah, I yeah okay. Um, the idea of Churchill trying to pull the U.S. into the war would be unlikely due to the following reasons: in 1915, the U.S. had not yet mobilized for war, and Britain was dependent on the U.S. for the British Army in France. If the U.S. had declared declared war right after the Lusitania's sinking, the supplies that had once been going to Britain would have stayed in the U.S., leaving the British without ammo to fight the Germans. Churchill and Fisher were known to keep information to themselves and to micromanage the affairs of Room 40. Fisher was close to a nervous breakdown at the time, and Churchill was in France at the time of the Lusitania's sinking. If he had wanted the Lusitania to sink, such a plan could not have happened without his explicit pr approval, and he would have stayed in Britain to supervise the plot instead of being in France. Um, I agree with this article that it's probably just bureaucratic nonsense. There was a world war, and the might of the British Empire had to be controlled and whatnot. I mean, at the end of the day, it was one ship. I mean, and as I had just read, 23 others had been sunk that month or something. So, like, it's not... Um, I do find it weird that, like, did the British, like, ever try to make their own U-boats or, like, capture them. I don't really get that because they don't really talk about that in World War One or World War Two. But anyways, thanks for listening, guys. I know this is a longer one, but um, I actually really enjoyed covering this. I hope you have a good week. Bye.